I want you to imagine this morning that you're standing at a playground and you overhear two dads having a conversation about how their sons are growing in maturity. You're standing there and you hear the one dad start to talk about how his son is being kinder to his siblings and getting his homework done on time. And then the other dad is thinking about how his son has grown in maturity and he says, yeah, well, that's great to hear. I tell you, my son has started loading the dishwasher for us. He's doing his own laundry. He even goes out of his way to make sandwiches and lunch for the whole family. He's just started being really helpful around the house. The other dad sort of looks over in amazement. He's a little shocked, and he says, wait, your son actually cleans and cooks and sees tasks around the house that need done? And the other dad says, yeah, he sure does. In fact, just last week, we celebrated his 38th birthday. (laughs) And we're hoping he can figure out the mower by number 39. You see, most people know there's this natural progression for children growing into maturity. You learn to brush your teeth, clean your room, do the chores, and so on. And all these are building towards the necessary step, eventually, of moving out of the house. Whereas it's cute for a nine-year-old to talk about doing his laundry and making his lunch. It's not so cute for a 39-year-old to tell you he's living at home but does a great job vacuuming the laundry room and has figured out the shop vac. The cuteness wears away. In fact, in 2006, Hollywood released a movie about this. It was titled Failure to Launch. Maybe some of you have seen it, and the family can't get their son to move out, and so they actually end up hiring an interventionist to come in and help to get him out of the house. The point is this. Maturity means moving out. That's kind of the main point this morning. Maturity means moving out. Now, our discipleship pathway is out on the, uh, the wall over there, if you go out the foyer, and we say there's three parts. There's membership to Christ and then to his church. That's critical. You become a Christian, you join a church. That's a step of obedience. And then you move into maturity, growth in Christ-likeness. And part of maturity is the third M of our pathway, leading out to mission. Maturity means I'm moving out for Christ on mission. And so this morning's sermon is titled, Disciples Move Out. And to be clear, I don't mean that disciples of Jesus can no longer live in their parents' basement. I do recommend getting your own place at the appropriate time, but that's not the, the main thing we're saying here. No, what we're saying is to be a disciple of Jesus means you're moving out, not of the house, but moving out on mission for him. In the last few weeks in 1 Timothy 1 have been focused on making disciples. We've used this language of building a culture of discipleship through protecting sound doctrine and growing in genuine love for one another. We've said a culture of discipleship flourishes when there's gospel doctrine that shapes the gospel culture in a church. And this has largely been focused, you might say, on making our doctrinal bed and loving our spiritual siblings. Up to this point, we haven't really talked about moving out into the neighborhood yet. And Paul says, hey, when we look at this playbook for disciples in First and Second Timothy, the next step is you have to move out on mission for Jesus. And he says there's four essential ways that we move out here in First Timothy chapter 2. And so that will form our outline to see four essential ways that disciples move out on mission. Let's start with the first one. Disciples move out with prayer to God. 
Disciples move out with prayer to God. We'll look at verses one through three. I hope you'll keep your copy of God's word open as we'll regularly go back to it this morning. Look back at verses one through three with me. Here's what Paul says. First of all then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings, and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it's pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior. See, Paul says that the first step in moving out on mission, the first step in moving out in a culture of discipleship is commitment to prayer. And maybe this sounds a bit predictable to you, perhaps a touch cliche. That's what the preacher is supposed to say on Sunday. You should pray more. But let's look carefully at what's actually said here. Right In the first verse, there's four verbs given to kinds of prayers. There's supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings. And entire books have been written about developing what each of these mean, how one is different than the other, and and certainly there are different kinds of prayer. But I think the point that Paul is trying to get at, the larger point, is we should be making all kinds of prayer for all kinds of people. Because he goes on at the end of verse 1 and says you're praying for all people. And then verse 2, he clarifies a bit, specifies it more, and says for kings and all who are in high positions. All kinds of prayer for all kinds of people. In other words, it's easy to pray prayers of gratitude for your friends who are there for you when you have a tough go of it. And it might be easy to pray imprecatory prayers towards your enemies. Psalm 3-7 might be your favorite prayer for your enemies. God, break the teeth of the wicked. I hope you don't pray that all the time over your enemies. But you understand the point I'm making. It's easy to pray particular kinds of prayers for people that you like or don't like in certain ways. And God is saying through his servant Paul, you should be praying all kinds of prayers for all kinds of people. And we ask, to what end are we praying these prayers? We look back at the end of verse 2. Here's what it says. We're praying this so that we may live a peaceful life and a quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. We're hoping through these prayers that God will answer them and give freedom to pursue doctrinal purity and personal piety. Because we know that when the doctrine is clear in a church and the culture is beautiful in a church, there's genuine love for one another, that will be a powerful church. And the local church is God's plan to reach the nations. He's not praying that we would establish a Christian nation here or a Christian nation there, but to say, no, we want to have the freedom to pursue doctrinal purity and personal piety. And so it's important that we don't miss this first step in moving out on mission, a commitment to prayer, that we recognize prayer changes things. Prayer changes you. Because it's easy to talk to your friends. It's easy for me to talk to my friends in a certain way about an issue. But if I'm going to talk to God about that same issue, I automatically have my thinking reoriented. Because I realize, man, maybe I'm not supposed to ask God for this thing. Maybe God's trying to teach me something through this. And there's just a way of talking to him about that that changes my viewpoint that's different than when I talk to my friends about it. Prayer changes me, but prayer changes the world as well. God uses our prayers. Somehow he knows what's going to happen and somehow our prayers do change things. It's what he tells us. Here's what it means. We recognize this. We don't pray before we work. Prayer is the work and then God works. That's so important for us to recognize. We don't pray before we work. Prayer is the work 
And then God works. And we know that every major revival throughout all human history has begun when a core of God's people commit themselves to prayer. Prayer is one of the most fundamental acts of faith you can ever take. Maybe it feels more like Christian duty and obligation and what you're supposed to do, but I want you to think about it as a fundamental act of faith. When you pray, you are saying, God, I'm not able to do this, but God, you are able to do this. God, I need you. Taking a step of faith to say, I can't do this, you can do this, I need you. Or on the flip side, we might say that prayerlessness is pride acted out. Prayerlessness is pride acted out where we say, God, I actually don't need you. I've got this covered. Have a nice day doing whatever you're doing, God, but I don't need your help here. Psalm 127.1, the author of Scripture would say this, unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. He says, you can stay up all night long at your watchtower, but if God isn't watching over the city, your city won't be watched over. He's the one doing the work. Jesus would come in Matthew 21 and say, my house shall be called a house of prayer because prayer is a fundamental act of faith. And I think we often will think about reading the Bible and applying it individually to our lives. And that's a good thing to do. We ought to do that. But we also ought to think about applying the Bible not just to our individual lives, but to the whole of our church body. So I want to think about this just for a moment of how we try to apply this corporately. Our pastor Jared prayed for a whole host of civic leaders today. But you know that that's a frequent prayer that we pray here in obedience to 1 Timothy chapter 2. That's us corporately applying this verse to our life in the church. You'll notice we often will pray somewhat long prayers because we recognize the things we give our time to, we tell are valuable. Right? You look at your schedule. This tells me what's valuable. And so when we gather as a church for 90 minutes, we say, no, we want concerted times of prayer, multiple concerted times of prayer to be given here, saying this is valuable. Prayer isn't just a cover for transitions for different people to come off the stage in a way that looks smooth. Right? Prayer actually matters, and together we value it in a hope that will actually encourage you individually to pray more substantively and more significantly and more fervently. You see, one of the things that we would say is that this book, the Bible, it drives our preaching. We open it, we explain it, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, book by book going through. And that's, that's good that it do that. But we also want the scriptures not to merely drive our preaching, but to drive the entire life of the church. And so one thing that that means for us is next Sunday, we're going to begin having a monthly corporate prayer gathering at 9 o'clock in this room in following obedience to what 1 Timothy 2 says. It is important that we gather together and pray and pray all kinds of prayers for all kinds of people. So I want to encourage you to be back next Sunday. Is it immediate? How do I read this passage, put it into practice? Be here at 9 o'clock next Sunday. Get up a little earlier. Don't see it as a chance to sleep in. See, God clearly says that we move out on mission by committing ourselves to prayer. And it's an act of faith to say, it's better for me to get up early next Sunday and be here with God's people to pray than it is to sleep in or eat some Hillegas donuts or just to kind of chill around the house with a slow Sunday morning. Disciples move out with prayers to God.
That's the first way we move out. What's the second way we move out? We move out with the desires of God, the single desire of God. Verse 4, look back at your copy of God's Word. Here's what it says. God, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Paul says we move out not only in prayer, but with desires that are shaped by God's desires, namely that he wants all people to be saved. And when you come to a phrase like that, it immediately forces us to ask a question. If God wants everyone to be saved, and clearly not everyone is saved, then what gives? What do we do with that sort of juxtaposition? And the best explanation is to recognize that in the Bible, God speaks of his will in two different ways, two kinds of wills, you might say. You say he has a, a moral will, what he desires to happen, and a providential will of what always does happen. The moral will is obviously not always followed. God doesn't want wicked things to happen, and wicked things do happen. Moral will can be violated. The moral will is not a secret. It's sometimes called his revealed will. So I chuckle when some people say, I'm trying to find the will of God, as if it was lost. It's not lost. He's told us in Scripture. Let me give you a couple of verses that show you this way that God speaks of his will. 1 Thessalonians 4.3 says this, For this is the will of God, your sanctification. His will for your life is not confusing. It's been revealed that you would become more like Jesus. Or another passage that speaks to this, just the next chapter over, 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 18. He says, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Again, revealed, clear, this is what he desires. Do I always give thanks in all circumstances? No, I don't. It can be violated, but this is God's desire for me. Then there's the second will of God, not just his moral will, or what we might call his revealed will, but what I call his providential will. Sometimes this is called his secret will, because we don't know what's going to happen. God's providential will is what does happen. It cannot be violated, and it's not known in advance. Sometimes theologians will call this the decree of God, if you're familiar with that terminology. Verses that speak to God's will in this way, you would look at Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 11. You see it on the screen. It says this, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him, and here's the phrase I want you to hear, who works all things according to the counsel of his will. It says, God works all things according to the counsel of his will. That's a different kind of will that he's speaking of, a will of providence, what always happens. He's working all things according to the counsel of that will. Or Isaiah 53.10 might be another helpful verse to look at. It says, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. And that's in the context of prophesying Jesus' death on the cross. It was not a morally good thing for the innocent one to be brutally murdered. That was a wicked act. So it's not God's moral will in that sense, but was his providential will that it did come to pass and he would use it for his purposes. Deuteronomy 29, 29, we don't have on the screen, but would be helpful to write down. Here's what it says. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of this law. See those two wills being put together. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. We don't know what's going to happen exactly, but we know that God's working all things according to the counsel of his will, Ephesians 1, 11. 
but the things that have been revealed belong to us and to our children that we should walk in them forever. Back to 1 Timothy 2, 1 Timothy 2, 4, when God says, I desire all people to be saved then, is his moral will. What he desires to happen but doesn't always happen. He wants all to be saved, but he knows his moral will can be violated and it will be violated. Now, I said that the second point was that disciples move out with God's desires. And, and perhaps you say, oh yeah, of course, Justin, what Christian wouldn't want everyone to be saved? It's a basic Christian desire. And, and I think it, it may be helpful to say at this point, yes, I recognize that desire, but oftentimes we know that talk is cheap and our actions reveal our true desires. You might think of much of corporate America that seems to be really concerned about causes, humanitarian causes, all sorts of things they want to pick up and, and run forward with. But as soon as it starts to impact their bottom line, their true desires are revealed. And they should, their talk was cheap, and they're not going to continue down that path anymore. Because their true desire is for the bottom line, even though they verbalize a desire in a different way. Maybe you've heard someone say, your actions speak so loudly I can't hear your words. Now, I know in word, every single member of Parkside has committed to a desire to take the gospel to those who don't believe. That's actually part of our statement of faith. You see it on the screen. Here's what every member of Parkside has affirmed. Next slide up there, please. Yep, here's what it says. Just as Jesus was sent into the world to save sinners, so all believers are sent by God to make disciples of all nations. On an individual level, this means every believer is called to take the gospel of Jesus Christ to their friends, coworkers, neighbors, and community. So, so what I'm not asking this morning, let me clarify what I'm not asking. I'm not asking, if you're a member here at Parkside, if you signed that statement in honesty with a clear conscience. Not asking if you actually want that to happen. What I'm asking is this. Do your actions towards unbelievers reveal this to be a true desire of your heart? Talk is cheap. What do your actions say? Do you have real friendships with unbelievers? Do you share meals with them? Do you invite them to go shopping with you or watch football games with you? Your actions reveal your desires. And if you have real relationships with them, do you make real efforts to engage them with the gospel? Do you ever ask them, what do you believe about Jesus? Do you ever ask them, have you read the Bible? Would you be interested in reading part of the Bible with me and see what God's word says about our world and how we're supposed to live? You see, when a culture of discipleship is established in a church, one of the results that we're going to see is more conversions, people placing their faith in Jesus, because your desires as a follower of Jesus will be shaped by his desires, and you will be seeking unbelievers with an intentionality to tell them who Jesus is. In a culture of discipleship, normal, everyday Christians cultivate real relationships with unbelievers for the sake of the gospel. It means that in a culture of discipleship, disciples are learning the words and the ways of Jesus. And he said, I came not for the healthy, but for the sick, to seek and to save the lost. And when our, we are learning his words and his ways, 
we seek the sick and not just the healthy to take a message that will seek and save the lost. Disciples move out with the desires of God. That's the second point. The third point, then, disciples move out not only with the desires of God, but with the way to God. Not just the desire of God, but the way to God. Look back at verses 5 and 6. Here's what we read. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. You know, these verses might be short, but they do have some serious meat packed into those two verses. There is immense doctrinal truth right there, that there's one God, there's only one way to the one God, and the testimony given at the proper time is that you should deny yourself and follow him. Maybe you're here this morning, and you're not yet a Christian, you're still thinking about the claims of Jesus, and this talk about one God and only one way to that God just feels off to you? Well, let's talk about just for a moment what our culture says on these things. Let's recognize that our culture has its own set of commands that do stand in pretty direct contradiction to what the Bible says. And for all the talk of inclusivity and acceptance in our world today, our culture absolutely has its own Ten Commandments. We were at a conference this past week, uh, some of our staff and at the church, and one of the speakers at the conference said it this way. I found it so helpful. You see it on the screen. His name was Trevin Wax, cultural commentator. He said this, For a society awash in expressive individualism, the greatest command is to be true to yourself, and the second is like it, to affirm and applaud whatever self your neighbor chooses to be. The greatest sins, then, are to deny yourself or to question or judge someone else's self-expression. Now, whether or not you believe the Bible is true, it is clear that the Bible confronts our cultural moment at this point. Right? The confrontation is obvious. The question we might be asking is, is it good for the Bible to confront our culture at this point? And history would show us that you can look back at any culture and see that each culture in its moment has its own blind spots. And so I would simply ask, is it possible that our cultural blind spot is saying that each individual is the own ultimate authority? Is it possible that the blind spot of our culture is saying, no, you should be true to yourself instead of submit to God? And if you answer, no, that's not possible, then we ought to have the intellectual honesty to say that your religion of self is actually more dogmatic than Christianity. Catch, I want to hear that very clearly. If it's not possible that that's a cultural blind spot in your view, then the religion of self you've just deemed to be more dogmatic than Christianity. Because biblical Christianity invites questions. It invites skeptics. I know not every Christian does that. So I'm certain you may have encountered some who don't invite that. But biblical Christianity does invite questions. In the book of Jude, Jude says to have mercy on those who doubt. Invite their questions. Let's talk about this together. And any secular religion that doesn't invite questions and skeptics of that proves itself to be stronger in dogma and less open to free thought. 
And what the story of the Bible tells us is that God made the world and everything in it out of his goodness as an overflow of who he is to be enjoyed forever and ultimately to bring glory back to him. But humans rebelled. We led an insurrection, you might say, and no, I want to be the true king. I don't want to submit to you, God. And this caused a separation from God with no path back to God, no way to restore that relationship. And so God, in love, sent his son to this earth, in a sense, to blaze a trail through the jungle of our rebellion and say, I will bring you back to God. I will be what 1 Timothy 2, 5 says, I'll be the mediator. I'll bring you back to God. A mediator is a go-between of sorts. Imagine in junior high school, a boy thinks this one particular girl is attractive and they would be a, a good match, but he doesn't have the courage to go talk to her. So he sends a friend ahead to be a mediator and see if she's interested. And if she comes back with a positive report, or he comes back rather with a positive report, the mediator has done his job and this boy can go with confidence and say, let's have this relationship together. And if the fear of a junior high girl to a junior high boy requires a mediator to go ahead, and, and maybe you're going to ask him to say, you know what, my buddy actually is a really good guy, and you know, he's a really cool dude, and I think you guys have a lot in common, this would be good. You're asking him to sort of open up that relationship. Then how much more would we need a mediator for the holy God of the universe who created us in love, and yet we've turned away and said, no, I want to do it my way. And Jesus comes and says, no, I desire all to be saved, and I will myself go down, and I will mediate this relationship. And how does he mediate? Verse 6 says there's two ways that he brings this relationship back together. It says he gave his life. No, it wasn't taken from him. Yes, Satan thought he won. Satan thought he was the ruler. Satan thought he'd been victorious at the cross. And Jesus said, no, I willingly give my life. I lay it down. And the second thing he says in verse 6 is he paid a ransom, a penalty for sin. He says, I'll pay the penalty, the bride price, to bring you back together. Romans 6.23 would simply say it this way, for the wages of sin is death. That's the ransom penalty that Jesus paid. He died because the death that I deserved and you deserved, he took so that you could live forever with God. And the rest of Romans 6.23 says, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus, our Lord. You can live forever with God because there is a mediator, one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Praise God. So as disciples move out, they must proclaim the truth that there is only one way to God and that sin separates. And we need a mediator who will pay the ransom. There's a very particular content of your message that you must move out with as a disciple. This passage says it's a, it's a ransom for all. Ransom for all. And we could lead this into squabbling with various theological tribes about what that means. Secondary or tertiary issues and, and think about that. Maybe another time we will. But we should recognize this. All Christians agree that what that means at a minimum is that Christ's sacrifice on the cross, the ransom he paid, is strong enough for any who will come to him. That he will not turn anyone away who says, I desire a relationship with you. I desire to have my sins forgiven. This means as a church, we go out with a message saying, Jesus 
will forgive. His arms are open no matter what you've done, no matter what you are doing. If you will turn from self and follow him, his arms are open wide. And here's my prediction for what's going to happen in our culture. I think it's important we think about this. Here's what I think is going to happen. We presently live in a world that's traumatized by a sexual revolution, by the idol of sex. And here's what I know about idols. They never keep their promises. Idol of sex or any other idol. Money, power, prestige, you name it. Eventually they let you down. They leave you hungrier than you were, more tired than you were, more frustrated than you were. And what I think is going to happen is we're going to have in the coming days, weeks, years, months, people who have been traumatized by the sexual revolution and they're going to find out those idols didn't keep their promises. And they're going to be looking for some ultimate satisfaction and meaning where they pursued it there and didn't find it. And then they need a church who will be equipped to say, Jesus' arms are open wide. You are loved, accepted, and welcomed if you will turn from sin and self and your idols and follow Jesus. Or as Jesus would say in Matthew eleven twenty eight. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Friends, it's critical that we be able to call out the sins of our culture, the need for repentance, biblical truth, and we stand firm on all of those things. But it's also critical that we don't build such a platform condemning the darkness that we don't ever platform the light and say, here's where hope is found. This is a place for you to come and find Jesus and find hope and find meaning and find forgiveness of your sins. And some of us tilt to one side or the other, and we have to keep both in view. Disciples move out on mission with the way to God. That's the third way we move out. And here's the fourth and the final way we move out. We move out with a calling from God. With a calling from God. Look back at verse 7 with me. Here's what Paul says. For this, we just talked about, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. In other words, Paul says, I'm compelled. I see the desire of God. I want to go forward and have actions that back up my words. I see the truth that there's only one way to God. That's the message I'm going to preach Paul says, God has appointed me as a preacher and an apostle, and so I'm going to my intended audience, namely the Gentiles. That's who God has called him to. And then he makes that little funny statement there. I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. Maybe you read that and you're like, Paul, why do you say that? That seems like an odd thing to say. Because in the church, Paul had personal detractors who said, yeah, he's not that good of a preacher. His life doesn't really match up. You shouldn't listen to him. And in the culture, he had doctrinal detractors, people saying, well, there's many ways to God. Jesus isn't the only mediator. Don't listen to this crazy lunatic over here. Come over and hear our TED Talk about how if you are true to yourself, you can find meaning and satisfaction. He had discreditors in the church and in the culture. So he said, no, no, guys, I'm, I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. I know people are speaking against me. This is what God clearly says. But just because Paul had a particular calling from God, an appointment from God, doesn't automatically mean that you've been appointed 
an apostle, a preacher to the Gentiles. Right? This is describing what happened in Paul's life. It's not prescribing what is happening in your life. So what do we do with a passage like this where it describes what's happening in Paul's life, not necessarily saying, here's what every single person must do. Well, what we ought to do is reflect and say, okay, what was the calling and the appointment made on Paul's life? And does the rest of Scripture make clear what the calling is on my life? And the good news is the rest of Scripture makes it abundantly clear what every Christian is called to. And we sometimes use this language of calling for like, well, I'm called to this job, I'm called to this thing or that thing. And we start to sort of meddle in what God hasn't necessarily revealed to us. It'd be better to just say, I have a strong desire for this job. I think God has given me gifts that would be fulfilled there and I can make a good living wage and the hours are good for my family and this is a good setup and I'm going to go do that. Just say a strong desire. Because when we look at the language of calling, what God has called us to, we see a much more specific picture. Let me show you a couple of passages here that apply to all people at all times, not merely describing Paul's life. First, Peter chapter 2, here's what Peter writes. You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Amen. That's, that's what God has done. It's who he's made you. Why? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. That's what God has called you to. It says he saved you from sin to send you out for him. It's not just so we can have a holy huddle and say, praise the Lord, it's awesome that God saved us. There's a message to be proclaimed. Or you might look at Acts chapter 17, verses 26 and 27. This is from one of Paul's sermons. Here's what he says. God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place. That's an astonishing phrase in its own right. That they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. I'm going to leave that slide there for just a second. Do you see what that says? He's determined allotted periods and boundaries of your dwelling place. That you are in Hendricks County today is not an accident. That you have the house you have is not an accident. That you have the neighbors you do is not an accident. That you have the job you do is not an accident. That you're going to have the waiter or waitress at lunch you will, is not an accident. All of these are determined by God so that people would feel their way towards God. And you know you're there, 1 Peter 2, to proclaim his excellencies. And now you know why they're there. God has called you to go out with a calling to make disciples. Or you could simply look at Jesus' final words on the earth in Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20, also on the screen. He simply says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. In that verse, there's one verb in the original language. It looks like many verbs in ours. One verb, make disciples. That's what God's called you to. And there's lots of ways you do it. As you're going, baptizing, teaching them to observe, one verb, go make disciples. So yes, 1 Timothy 2 describes the calling on Paul's life, but the rest of Scripture makes it really clear what the calling on our life is. Go proclaim his excellencies. Recognize that no one in your life is an accident. And your call is to go make disciples. Every single Christian. I want you to look back at 1 Timothy 2 and see the very last couple of uh, words there in verse 7. In faith and in truth. This is how Paul obeyed his calling, his commissioning. I obeyed in faith and in truth. 
I want to circle those, underline those. And think about your own life in this way. Recognize this. Okay, I know I'm called to make disciples. What does it look like? As Paul walked in faith and truth, what does it look like for me to walk in faith and truth? Say it this way. It takes real faith in God's truth to invite your neighbor to come to church with you. It takes real faith in God's truth to ask your coworker to read the Gospel of John with you. But that might feel absolutely terrifying to you. That's why it's faith in God's truth, not confidence in your ability. It takes real faith in God's truth to ask your friend what she believes about Jesus, knowing that there's a high likelihood she'll have questions about Jesus that you can't answer on the spot. And you'll have to say, you know what, that's a great question. Could I think about that and get back to you? We obey in faith and in truth, just like Paul did. And when the rubber starts to hit the road and we start to get serious about moving out and making disciples like this, I think the common response from most Christians is to say, Justin, I don't have faith like that. That sounds terrifying. But let me just tell you what we do know. We do know this, that God has always used weak people. God's always used foolish people who will simply trust in his power. And if he can create the entire universe without raising a finger, merely speaking a word, do you know who he can use? You. He can use you. And if he can cause his church to flourish with unbelievable revival in an incredibly hostile culture in the first century, do you know where else he can make his church flourish again? Right here, in the midst of a hostile culture with people who will obey in faith and in truth? See, sometimes I think we just got to get ourselves out of the way and have more confidence in who God is and what he said and what he's going to do and be less concerned with our own shortcomings. I started this morning with an analogy of kids moving out, two dads talking at a playground. Sometimes I think what we need as Christians is a spiritual parent to come alongside, put the arm around and say, man, it's time for you to move out of the house. I'm really glad that you've made your doctrinal bed. That's a good step. Praise the Lord. I'm really glad that you're starting to love your spiritual siblings in a better way. That's good. Praise the Lord. But son, you need to move out in faith. It's time. Let's go together. I know it's scary. You're not sure how you go buy a house and navigate the whole inspection business and figure out if that deal in the foundation is a deal breaker and you should or shouldn't buy that house. I get all that scary. I'll come with you. But it's time for you to move out and start taking steps. And you'll stumble, and I'll be there to help you, but you can't stay put. So what I want to invite each of you to do this morning, so it's a little bit different way of wrapping up. I just want to invite you to do a little self-analysis here this morning. I want to invite you to kind of scan through the main points of this passage. For me to move out in faith and in truth, it means i got to have faith to say that we don't pray before we work. No, prayer is the work, and then God works. And I need to move out in prayer to God because I've not been doing that. Or you look down and say, you know what, I need to embrace the truth that God desires for all to be saved. And maybe I've been affirming that in word, but my deeds don't affirm that desire in my heart. Or you see, there's the truth 
that there's one way to God and there's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. So you can go to God in confidence and have a confident offer that if you will come to Christ, he will accept and receive you. And you need to embrace that truth and not be so concerned with the expressive individualism of our day. Or maybe it's just that last point where you say, man, I just need to embrace in faith that God has called me to this, not because I'm an all-star, not because I got all these gifts, but because he equips those he's already called, and I just step out in faith and start moving out of the house. We reflect on our life, confess our sins to God, respond in obedience, because disciples move out. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. We thank you, we thank you that you have loved us with an unending love, that you would send your son to blaze a trail through our rebellion against you and mediate a path back to you with a message we could take to anybody. And if they'll come to you, you will in no wise cast them out. That's awesome. And Lord, I pray that you would give us strength to move out on mission for you We all have our fears. You know them, Lord, better than we do probably. So I ask in the coming moments here, as we reflect and confess our fear to you, our sin of inaction perhaps, that by your grace you would move in us and your kindness would lead us to repentance and we would respond in biblical obedience. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.